0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to ARE Live. Uh, I'm Mark Tier, the founder of Black Spectacles, and today uh, we're going to talk about the ARE for Site Planning and Design uh, exam, uh, and we're going to go through the mock exam that Mike has prepared for all of you guys. Uh, Before we get started, as always, if you'd like to attend next week's ARE live broadcast, where we're going to have a discussion with recently licensed architects and learn how they passed, you can go to blackspectacles.com/podcast to register. Um, and during the broadcast, you know you have a chance to ask questions to the group. Um, and you know, even if you've attended one of these uh, before, I will just say that every time, you know, we have some different folks on uh, on that uh, episode, and there's always something new to to learn about, you know, how someone prepared or uh, if you're looking for good ideas for ways to celebrate afterward um so it's always usually it's always usually a really lively discussion that i think you guys will like um, so let's see that's that Um couple updates to our products as we mentioned last time uh, group coaching and are 5 practice exams so uh, as you guys know we do video um, uh, lectures with mike newman Uh, and sell subscriptions for those, but also uh, we now have practice exams for ARE-5. And um, what's awesome about them is that they're designed to as closely as possible simulate the experience of taking the real exam. So they look as close as possible. They, you know, they have, um, everything about them is as close as possible. In fact, we even use the exact same process that NCARB uses to develop their questions. Um, Maybe not exact same, but as best we could kind of simulate it. So it's a really good tool, Um, highly recommend it uh, for you guys who are preparing for ARE-5. And then for group coaching, um, uh, we do have a group coaching program uh, where you can get paired up with a a group of really committed uh, architects or aspiring architects, as well as someone who recently passed, um, and they will lead uh, a group um, through a a 6-, 12-, or 24-month group coaching program to help you get through the exams. So those are a couple of things. Uh, Let's see here. Um, So today, just to let you guys know, at the end of our broadcast, we will have a special discount on Black Spectacles individual memberships to share. Um, And then since we have our mock exam today, at the end of our episode, we'll choose someone from all the folks who submitted their answers to the mock exam and they'll win a free one-month ARE prep Black Spectacles subscription. And we'll be tracking your answers and everyone who gets them all right will get a free Black Spectacles t-shirt. So stay tuned for that. Mike is, uh, of course, our episode today is with with Mr. Mike Newman, who is currently uh, at the Rural Studio. Um, so we're broadcasting kind of remotely, uh, which is kind of fun. As you know, Mike's an uh, adjunct professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. He's also the founder of Shed Studio, and he's an instructor, as I mentioned earlier, um, of our Black Spectacles online ARI exam prep curriculum, which if you haven't checked it out, you know, there's a bunch of free videos on our website. So just go to blackspectacles.com to check those out. Ah, uh, we'll be taking questions using the GoToWebinar question box as well as on Twitter using the ARE live podcast hashtag. Um, and with that, uh, Mike, what are do you doing in the Rural Studio?
1: yeah, how about that? So uh, apologies now if this if the audio is a little odd, but uh, uh, we may have an occasional student wandering through and making some noise. So uh, yeah, I'm down here as a visiting critic, um, helping uh, the kickoff of the year. If you don't know the Rural Studio, it's an amazing program uh, architectural school program as part of Auburn University. Uh, they do uh, really spectacular design-build work uh, out here in really quite rural uh, parts of Alabama. Um, and so the fact that we have any, uh, uh, any connection at all is actually pretty amazing because um, uh, there's very little uh, cell service or any of that kind of thing around here. But it's a, an amazing program. They do great work, and it's the kickoff of the new, uh, new school year for them. And so we're going mm-hmm. through a series of workshops. And we were the last workshop going through talking about uh, – uh, design and uh, financing and how you get projects uh, kind of how you talk to people in communities about projects it's been a great time having a
0: really good students and a fun time awesome. So check it out yeah I'd say Mike you sound very good over here so um, so let's have at it okay
1: uh, so as Mark said we're gonna be talking about the uh, 4.0 version of site planning and design uh, obviously this is a, a little mini mock exam so um, uh, we're going to be focused uh, right now on the multiple-choice type questions, uh, that uh, the exam is split uh, between multiple choice and then some uh, vignette uh, programs, the uh, the hated vignettes. Um, so we're going to be focused on the multiple choice part right now. And uh, the point of the questions is partly to just give you an idea of uh, sort of questions that might come. Um, But also, you know, some of these questions are a little slightly tortured uh, because there's a a topic that I'd like to discuss. Uh, So some are better than others in terms of actually mimicking question types. Other ones are really more about giving us a platform to have a discussion. So uh, I'll try to mention which ones seem more like regular uh, questions and which ones are a a little different. But let's uh, let's sort of dive in and and see what happens here. So uh, I'm Mark. I'm presuming you can see my screen. Yeah, you're looking good okay Uh, okay question number one when a surveyor is working in a rural location without immediately accessible benchmarks they might propose the use of so now we're clearly talking about kind of in the beginning of a project uh, there's a surveyor involved Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a second Uh, and the kind of process of a surveyor given the difference between rural and urban settings so uh, surveyor, they might propose doing A, Fathom Survey, B, Meets and Bounds Survey, C, Easements, D, Ordinance Request. Uh, the w- words in here that are related uh, to surveys and to site planning uh, are many. Um, most of them are red herrings in there to sort of uh, see if you would get uh, kind of fooled off to the side. Uh, fathoms is actually the one that's the farthest, even though it's actually sort of related. Fathom is uh, a term of measurement, and it's a naval term of measurement. I believe it's a little over six feet, uh, if I remember correctly. Uh, and it's a way of uh, judging, you drop an anchor down, you see how deep the water is. Uh, and so it's related to similar kind of measurements like a survey, but it's the wrong category. So it's definitely, uh, we are definitely not A. Uh, so then uh, when we start looking at D, C, and B, uh, ordinances are absolutely part of this process uh, and uh, sort of understanding what the ordinance sort of set of relationships are, uh, but that's actually not at the survey point. That would be more after the survey is done. You'd be wanting to know what the ordinance types uh, available are, uh, what, uh, what uh, zoning issues uh, would pop up from that, uh, when you need to have a variance from that. But that's a later concern after the s- survey, so it's not ordinance easements are a kind of fascinating thing we'll talk about them a little bit again a bit later but easements are when there is a contract uh, about use of the property other than the normal use uh, that any property would have so if i buy a piece of property i obviously have the rights to use that property within certain zoning limits and certain lawful limits of other kinds uh, like I can't necessarily shoot guns on any site or something like that. So there's certain lawful, uh, considerations. Um, but other people do not have rights to my property. Uh, I might be able to give them rights. I might have some way of, uh, allowing people to use property, but they don't, uh, automatically get rights to my property. Well, imagine you're a utility company and you need to be able to get the phone lines through or the water underground, but it has to go. Th- Across somebody's property, so you the the utility company would need to be able to make a contract with the owner of that property and say, I am writing this contract in order to to allow us to have our utility lines go th- across this property, and here's the drawing that would show where that would happen and what the extents of the easement would be. So that's the easement is a sort of a. a, a definable entity of relationship uh, where two parties are making a contract with each other. The thing that makes an easement different from a standard contract is that this contract actually rides with the deed. So it can't be that I make this deal with the utility company and then I turn around, uh, maybe the utility company pays me some money, uh, and then I turn around and sell the property and now it doesn't that it's not a meaningful deal that they made, that wouldn't be fair. So this is a special kind of contract that rides with the deed. So if I sell the property, that when the deed comes up for at sale, you would, you would be able to see the easements that are attached to it. Uh, so that it's a contract that stays in perpetuity, or you can also build in, uh, so, you know, maybe it's a 99-year lease uh, or easement. Uh, uh, something like that. So easements are definitely part of the understanding of a survey. They should show up on most surveys. They don't always. It can get a little complicated, but generally they should show up on surveys. Uh, the easements are very important for understanding where you can build and where you can't build. Um, but they are not part of. Uh, um, they, they, they don't. It doesn't really make sense as the answer to this question. Uh, the kind of interesting thing about easements, I use the utility companies as a sort of base example because that's the most sort of obvious. But you can have uh, sightline easements, you could have access like driveway access easements, you could have air rights, are a kind of easement, uh, you could have any number of different things. It's just a contract between two people, one of whom is the landowner and the other one is somebody who needs some sort of access onto that land, and then that easement rides with the deed. So it's highly related to surveys, but it's a different question. So then that leaves us with B, meets and bounds survey. Meets and bounds surveys is kind of an old timey concept. Uh, It's a situation where you would go out someplace uh, that you're gonna be doing a survey for and you'd start somewhere. Like maybe there's a, a marker that somebody has put down and says, this is the corner of our property and it's a, a stone marker or something like that. And then the uh, the meets and bounds survey would say, all right, you go at a certain angle uh, for you know whatever that angle is, let's say uh, uh, 70 degrees, uh, and you're gonna go 350 feet. And then you're gonna go from that spot, uh, another set angle, uh, and you're gonna go 420 feet. And then you're gonna go another angle Uh, and so the understanding of the outline of the uh, property is solely based on itself. It's starting at a spot, and then you're understanding through degrees and dimensions, uh, the the lengths uh, and the the angle that you're going to be going at, and you're sort of claiming this piece of land. So the key word here in the question was uh, without any immediately accessible benchmarks. So benchmarks is the idea that we start with some piece of information. If you have a surveyor, you're in a city, they're not starting from scratch and figuring out how high they are above sea level uh, by going all the way back from, say, Denver uh, down to uh, the Gulf Coast to figure out where sea level is. That would be ridiculous, it would take forever. They're just going off of other benchmarks that have already done that. And so all surveys are sort of helping the next survey. Uh, And we use benchmarks as a way to say, all right, here's a piece of uh, land. Here's an element that we know. It might be elevation height. It might be location uh, east, west, north, south. uh, But there's some element that we know, and we refer to it as a benchmark because that's the starting point, and then we move from there. In this case, we actually don't really know where that starting point is. So there is no benchmark. It's solely sort of known to itself. And this would happen, first of all, it happened all the time in sort of, um, you know, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, 200 years ago. Uh, it was a very common way of doing doing this. But these days, the only place it really happens is in rural situations like out in deserts or something where there's just not going to be any likely easy to get to benchmark. So meets and bounds, a very particular kind of survey. Uh, it's, if you're in a city, it'd be very unlikely that you'd use this. Uh, you use a, a standard Platt of survey, uh, not a meets and bounds survey. So a uh, useful term, not likely to show up in your daily life uh, all that often, although it might if you do a lot of rural work. Uh, I've actually come across them in cities, but they were when buildings had been around for 150, three, two, 150 or 170 years. And so the actual working survey was 150 years old. Uh, and it was a meets and bounds survey, even though we were in uh, in a city. So you'll come across them occasionally, but it's more like that kind of just sort of understanding that there are multiple ways to sort of document and measure and think about uh, how sites work from a legal standpoint. Remember, surveys are a legal description of the land. So it's the it's different from a site plan, it's the legal description. You think about Who's actually doing the survey? Well, we have surveyors, they are uh, also licensed just like architects are uh, because they are an important part of that kind of legal transfer of one piece of property to another. And so the surveys are done by the owner, by the client. It's part of the what they are expected to pull together when they are starting a project. So you get a, a contract with a, an owner for a new, new project at that moment, they should be handing you a program for the for that, the contract signed, and they should be having handing you a survey and possibly environmental information and a few other things. So early on in a project, surveys are a big part of it, and kind of understanding the terminology is a, a useful thing. Awesome. awesome. B, Ethan Bounds
0: all right so I think we're down to 67 people and just hey guys if you were gonna post a question here we get we get quite a lot of them just uh, if you could just let us know which question number it was for we'll probably come back to your questions so just put it like question number one and then whatever question you might have go ahead Mike okay number two uh, the client has bought some old industrial
1: land and wants to use it to build 150 townhouses in your initial look at the zoning code you realize that the manufacturing district uh, the site is in does not permit housing. What is the logical suggestion you might make to the owner? So then you have a couple of different possibilities. Uh, A, change from a subdivision to a township jurisdiction. B, become politically active in the area. C, PUD. D, variance. So obviously, Become politically active in the area, that would be a great idea, but that's not really the number one thing you're going to be talking about. That's something you would want to do anyway if you're going to be putting that many houses into a space, but that's not uh, not really a reasonable architectural answer. So it's not B. Uh, Change from a subdivision to a township jurisdiction. You don't get to choose your jurisdiction. Um, The jurisdictions exist, so it's not A. Uh, if you are in a subdivision that's the jurisdiction if you're in a township that's the jurisdiction so we can't choose a Uh, so then the question comes down to PUD or variance and actually both are potentially plausible answers Uh, uh, variance in this kind of situation this kind of context refers to a way of changing your site's uh, relationship to the zoning code. So there are setbacks, there are uh, districts, there are uh, height limitations, there's a whole series of different things that the zoning code is gonna put on any one site. And you can often alter those uh, at various levels of intensity uh, by asking for a variance. Uh, then you have to get approved, and if you get approved, you can move ahead with the project. Something like uh, going from manufacturing to a huge 150 unit uh residential that's much bigger than a typical like i just want to go from a 10 foot uh, side yard setback to an eight foot side yard setback something something like that would would uh, be much more typical variance uh sometimes you might be able to go from a you know m1 district of a certain kind of manufacturing to an m2 district you know something that's very close and similar uh, but a little bit different. It allows you to do as subtly different uh, as permitted uses are subtly different. Uh, so variance is certainly a plausible answer, but it's actually not the best answer in this scenario. The best answer is going to be C, PUD. And a PUD is a planned unit development. Um, now, Uh, In order to kind of make it a little harder to to guess on this particular version, I said PUD. On the exam, I believe they would actually spell it all out and say planned unit development. So they're not going to try to hide it uh, in that kind of way. So that's one of those examples I was talking about, about the way that we've worded this. But a planned unit development is that situation where you have an idea, it's a good idea, you think the city or the municipality or the township uh, is going to like this idea, but it doesn't currently fit to the way that they've organized the zoning code. So what are you gonna do? Well, essentially, you make a proposal and you write a new zoning code just for that site and you write it and you write out all the different things like what the setbacks are gonna be and how the street lighting's gonna work and where the roads are gonna go and uh, all of that stuff. You you make something that makes sense to you and that you think would make sense to the city, the municipality, the township, whatever. And then you give that uh, proposal, that proposed uh, zoning ordinance for this particular site uh, to the local zoning official. The local zoning official might review it, they might uh, talk about it, say, well, I don't think this is a good idea, or uh, have you know a little back and forth, And so then maybe you rewrite it to sort of uh, fit to their needs. Once they accept it, then they would then take it to the local uh, city council or whatever uh, system the local municipality has for governorship. Go- governorship. Uh, and they would then vote it in or vote it down. So just like uh, any part of the zoning code it has it's like a law codes are a little different from laws but they're essentially for our purposes they're kind of like a law and how do laws get enacted well they get voted in by the city council or whatever the entity is uh, and so they would vote it in just like any other part of the zoning code just like any other part of the law of the land in that municipality and then if they say yes and they it in then it literally becomes part of the zoning map. It literally goes into the zoning code. And so it might say, uh, planned unit development number 7,242. And there'll be a little line that says, this is uh, kind of what's happening and this is where the information for this can be found. And so it becomes literally part of the zoning code of that place. So. This would be a classic example where you would probably need to do a PUD because it's too big a change for the various forms of variances and, and changes from the normal zoning code. Some places, uh, like Chicago, uh, where uh, I normally am, got a phone phone call going in the background and I don't know how to turn it off, apologies. Um, uh, some places uh, will use slightly different terms like plan development um, and planned development is the same as a planned unit development, and there's a couple of other examples like that. Um, but essentially, most of the country will use the term hey, Mike, PUD. Could you,
0: Mike, could you just pause for one second and maybe just say that over again in our recording? We're going to cut this section out.
1: Okay. And maybe just
0: say what you were just saying again for me. Okay. Thank you.
1: Uh, so most of the country will work uh, will use the term planned unit development. Uh, but some places, like where I normally am in Chicago, uses actually plan development, a PD. But everybody essentially uses some version of those two or some related version. And the exam, as far as I understand, at least in previous years, the exam has always used PUD uh, for this, uh, this understanding. It's an important concept because uh, zoning codes are written and they're important for kind of a town to be able to, uh, organize uh, how development's going to happen and how economic development happens. But if you are overly prescriptive, then you potentially are stopping development and the towns don't want that. They want to be able to encourage development. So there needs to be a structure that allows that uh, to happen and the PUD is sort of one of the big ones for these big type changes. How do we do right. on that one?
0: Yeah, we're doing okay. Uh, you gotta knocked a lot of people out on that one. Uh, I think we're down to 30. All right. It's a good term.
1: It's a good term to know. And like I said, variance you will often find on these exams there are multiple correct answers. Just one is more correct than the other, and that would be true with variance. In that, where variance is a reasonable answer, it's just not as good an answer as a PUD. Okay, number three. Uh, In a typical urban shopping street zone for retail, uh, what is the front yard setback? So, all right, we're talking in a typical urban and shopping, retail, uh, front yard setback. So zoning codes often will tell you, uh, you, you, know, you can't build within say five feet of the side yard or you can't build in the, the 40 feet of the backyard. And uh, that uh, creates a, a sort of way that most of the structures in that district will sort of follow as a general set of rules. And those rules are there in order to uh, kind of create a sense of density, a, a certain scale. Uh, so that people feel uh, in a housing district that it feels like housing and that they it feels appropriate and there's places for kids to play and things like that Uh, but then in other more downtown more dense uh, places it feels appropriately dense Uh, and an urban shopping uh, retail area uh, would be one of those density spots so imagine you're in a city and an urban setting uh, and you are standing on the sidewalk, and how far away is the door to the uh, to the uh, shop? Well, it's not far away, it's right there. The answer on this is gonna be almost always zero feet, uh, because you're trying to have the retail areas feel dense, feel exciting. You want, uh, as a city, they want to have The retail, you go from one to the next, so you're encouraging people to be able to go from, you know, one easily and go to the next. So the idea of the density, the idea of coming right up to the street edge, the reason that you picture that in your head uh, when you think of an urban setting and a retail, like a shop, uh, the reason you picture that door being right on the sidewalk is because that's how zoning codes work, is that in that kind of setting, it's very likely that that's going to be a zero-foot setback. Uh, and that means that most people are going to push forward and be right there uh, at that sidewalk and get that sense of excitement. And fr- from the city standpoint and from the retailer standpoint, also hopefully for them, get a sort of sense of economic development kind of going that one store helps the other and they they kind of create shopping districts. Can you imagine? Can you can you picture uh, uh, where there's a setback that's bigger than that? Absolutely. There. Are tons of places in lots of different cities where they started maybe as residential, but then for one reason or another have become uh, 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 retail areas. Um, And so they're kind of stuck with the old uh, setbacks. Um, You know, that happens all the time, but it's not the rule and it's not the way that they would do it if they were starting from scratch. So a typical answer to that would be zero feet.
0: Now Mike, would you say that this is more of one of those kind of trying to make a point kind of ones or um or yeah. a fair one, a sort of a fair game question?
1: No, this is absolutely yeah, thanks for reminding me. Yeah, this is absolutely something that is more about trying to make a point uh than this is um it would be fairly unusual for them, such a speculative type question to ask uh, like this. It would have more information and it might be, like uh, in the actual exam, it might be more like, uh, here's some information about a site and here's a piece of the zoning code and here's a site plan uh, where do you think the front wall of the building is going to be? Or where, you know, where's the the front setback? And you would have to negotiate your way through the zoning code and through the site plan and through the, the question, the base question and, you know, a few other pieces of uh, information to be able to figure out where that would go. Uh, so I'm, yeah, I'm using this more as an opportunity to sort of get across the idea that the zoning codes are tools with a purpose and that the purpose has, there's many different purposes, but you'll find that there is purpose behind these things. They are about setting a a scale and density, setting a a sort of logical type of interaction. uh, So certain kinds of spaces get spread far apart. Other kinds of spaces, they're expected to be very, very close and dense. Uh, The scale uh, through FAR and through uh, uh height restrictions and things like that is also discussed through this and changes through districts so you're you're really create you're using the zoning code to create the desired effect in the city and that we as architects are just sort of trying to understand what they are allowing and expecting us to do And if we have a better idea then we go back to the pud if we have a uh, uh, subtly different ideas we'd use variances and things like that but generally, we're trying to fit our projects into the sort of game plan that the local municipality has. And this is just sort of talking about that.
0: Yep. And so, guys, for those of you who missed maybe the, the beginning part of this, just to kind of uh, restate it again, some of the questions that Mike's prepared for you guys or we've prepared for you guys together, um, some of them are are, you know, they, they're probably going to kind of feel like the real questions on the exam, and some of them are going to feel almost like trick questions maybe, or maybe they're a little little, little trickier. Maybe there's not enough information, and, and Mike's using those here t- to help you sort of think about these issues, so don't necessarily be consider them so literally, and that's why, that's why we were just discussing that. Um, so thanks, Mike. That's great. I think we're down to 16 here.
1: Okay. Number four, which of the following are true about multifamily housing? Choose three. So I'm just gonna read through all of them and then we'll come and come back and think about which ones are, are likely to be associated with uh, uh, multifamily housing. A, each unit should get at least some direct sunlight each day. B, demising walls should be fire rated. C, multifamily structures should be limited to five stories or less in case of power outages. D, the best planning will make a series of towers in a garden, thus giving plenty of green space for kids to play. E, providing Larger multifamily structures near transit stops uh, uh, will often allow the developer to produce fewer parking spaces. F, if the building is over three stories, then radon is not a concern. So okay, we start looking through these, these are kind of random, there's a series of questions, uh, potential answers here that are... Um, uh, about kind of design planning, and there's a series of questions that are a little bit more straightforward, earnest, like uh, should it be fire rated. Uh, when I run through, um, and and this is another kind of interesting example one, uh, there are many different examples uh, in uh, NCARB uh, information uh, where there are certain design principles that they expect you to know. Um, and. How you would know them is <laughs> tricky, um, so it's not always obvious, but one of them is A. Uh, so A is absolutely part of this, uh, so I'm going to circle that one. Each unit should get at least some direct sunlight each day. This is not a code. This is not something you are mandated to do. This is just sort of uh, w- an architect should know that we sh- every unit should get at least some sunlight. Uh, this is sort of one of those kind of unwritten rules. Uh, would you not be able to build it? Would a code official stop you? No, nope, they're not going to care. But uh, the AIA and NCARB and everybody feels like uh, this is the kind of thing that you should know as an architect. So I'm going to circle A. Uh, B, demising walls should be fire rated. Uh, in almost every situation of multifamily, uh, there's a f- couple of exceptions, that, but they are very, very particular exceptions. Uh, the demising walls are fire rated. So what this means is, the demising walls means the demise of the unit, it's the wall between two different units. Uh, there's gonna be some regulation that tells us about what those walls need to be. It may not be a full hour, it might only be a half hour fire rated, but it's likely to be an hour, possibly two hours, even more in certain situations. So I'm also gonna circle B. Ooh, yeah. Sorry right there, all right. Uh, and then C, multifamily structures uh, should be limited to five stories uh, or less in case of power outages. Um, this is something that's not a necessarily a terrible idea, but it's not a—it's not something that's in the lexicon. It's not an ex- expectation. There are uh, plenty, many, many thousands of uh, multifamily buildings that are uh, seven stories, eight stories, 12 stories, 15 you know, uh, up to uh, 88 story uh, type buildings uh, in big downtowns. Uh, So uh, that's just not something uh, that is expected. Now, it's not a terrible idea because after uh, all the hurricanes that have been happening, uh, you've seen lots of people when the power goes out, you're elderly, something like that. It's actually potentially a big deal to be able to get in and out of the building if you have to walk up seven flights of uh, stairs. But it's not necessarily something that would show up on uh, something like the exam. Uh, And then D. uh, the towers in the garden. Um, this is a reference to the corbu plan uh, of the uh, Le Corbusier plan, uh, Paris, um, and uh, is widely derided as not uh, not really usable. Uh, it doesn't actually. People don't feel ownership of those uh, green spaces, uh, and so are uh, significantly problematic. There are many uh, thousands of architects who challenge those ideas and say that uh, the high-rises are actually great. Um, uh, so it's, a, it's an open question, but it's definitely not something that would be uh, on the exam where they would think that that was a great idea doing the towers in the garden where the kids could then play because the kids would be unsupervised and uh, it would, it would not the parents would not feel ownership of the, of those garden spaces. So D is no. Uh, e. Providing larger multifamily structures near transit stops will often allow the developer to produce fewer parking spaces. Uh, on that situation, uh, that's absolutely a logical. Now, note how it's written. It's there's a little. It's not saying this will happen all the time. It's saying that uh, if you are providing larger multifamily structures uh, near transit stops, that will often be something. Uh, That would be useful uh, that the developer will will often get to be able to do something beneficial to them like provide fewer parking spaces the idea here is you're trying to encourage people to uh, Put new housing near transit sites. So there's a whole series of Relatively new I mean there are some places that had similar things for 20 30 years but a lot of it is within the last about 10 years and it's this idea of these overlay zoning and this is really referring to this this is about kind of encouraging smart growth Uh, you might hear that term used on the exam and the the thought here is you don't just want people to be building generally we have opinions about where we as a city we as a society have opinions about where development should happen and by giving incentives Uh, for the things we want to happen, uh, to be able to happen, that's a way that we can encourage development where we want it uh, and discourage development where we don't want it. We're not saying no, we're not saying you can't do that. We're saying, yeah, you can do it, but if you do it over here, where the society gets this other benefit of more likely uh, use of public transport, then what we're doing is we're setting up the future uh, to have a a cleaner future, a better future, density where we want it, and it's a big advantage. So this particular example is talking about parking spaces, uh, but we could have easily been talking about, let's say you're allowed to build 20 units on a particular size lot of a particular district, but maybe you're within 600 feet of a public transit stop, and you're able to uh, add on an extra 10%, which would mean you'd be able to add on two more units. Well, that's a big deal to a developer, and that little bit of encouragement is going to densify near the transit stops but uh, not say no to other people. We're not saying you can't build. We're just doing this overlay zoning, which is encouraging people and discouraging people, encouraging them to do the things we want discouraging them to do the things that we don't want which would be putting more housing in places that are farther away uh, from public tra- uh, transit so this is a like this is just one little potential uh, discussion point but it's an important idea of this idea of the overlay zoning of the smart growth where we are seeing things beyond just the zoning code and finding ways to encourage the things that we like uh, and as a city, getting more benefit out uh, for the future uh, of the of the constituents. Uh, and then, so those are the three that uh, that I would put on. All right, we're down to eleven with that, Mike. All right. Number five. While reading the landscape code for a specific mun- municipality, the architect sees that uh, grass areas have a maximum slope of 25% your site plan has a grassy area that is 37 feet long. What is the maximum vertical rise that can be shown on your topography for this grassy area? Uh, So this is a sort of odd little question, um, but what it's really getting at is uh, that in different situations, we talk about slope differently. So we're talking about uh, an accessible ramp, we're probably talking about one to 12, uh, right? It's, that's how we would talk about it. We're talking about a roof, you might be talking about a, a six and 12 roof or a three and 12 roof or a 12, 12 roof. Uh, so we talk about things in certain ways, but when we're talking about uh, a slope of topography, we actually use the term percentage. I personally hate this term. I think it's a terrible way to talk about uh, slope Uh, but it's the way that it is talked about uh, in sort of uh, landscaping circles and big earth moving circles um, and also on site plan discussions of topography uh, for the NCARB. So the reason that I don't like the term percent is that if you think about it, the idea of a percentage, uh, the way that we use it here, so a 25% slope would be essentially If you imagine a vertical line 25 feet long and a horizontal line 100 feet long, then that's the slope connecting those two lines. Uh, So that would be the 25% uh, slope. Now, I actually drew it a little bit off. It looks a little taller than that, but you get the idea. Uh, So it's a way of saying 25 over 100 uh, is the comparison. The reason I don't like it is if I say a 100% slope, Uh, A 100% slope would be, let's say, 100 feet and 100 feet. Oops, sorry. Uh, Let me get rid of that one. Uh, That's a 45-degree angle, which my guess is when I said 100% slope, most people probably pictured in their head a vertical line, Uh, and it's not. And this is why I don't like the use of the term uh, percent for this. But this is the way that we actually talk about it. So you'll see there might be a 2% minimum on a site so that water is uh, draining uh, off the site. You don't get ponding, things like that. Uh, There might be a 25% maximum for certain kinds of uh, growing. There might be a 50% maximum uh, for the ability of people to be able to walk on something uh, or the fact that a 50% maximum is going to give you uh, a... uh, um, Uh, on most soils when you start getting past 50% there may be some trouble we may have to add some some ability for that soil to hold itself together and be cohesive so it doesn't just slide down Uh, but uh, this is a set of terminology you should get used to the idea of the sort of percent slope Uh, in the end uh, it's actually a fairly simple way of thinking about it if you uh, take 25 if you imagine 25 is equal to 100 is the same thing as Uh, X is equal to 37, uh, you get 9.3 feet. So that's our answer right there. Okay. Number six, if a designer is trying to make an exterior walkway that works for everyone but also is cost effective by reducing the amount of railings and other special structures, the maximum slope should be one to what? Well, we just mentioned that a one to 12 slope is an accessible ramp and that's great and that's useful and important to know, but when you have an accessible ramp, it means you also have railings and curbs and uh, expectations of landings and things like that. So can I have a slope that's one to 10? Well, yeah, I can, I just can't call it accessible. Can I have a slope that's one to 12 or one to 14 or one to 16? Yeah, those are great. Those are all accessible slopes. But when I get to one to 20, so one to 20, I now am at the end of what's considered an accessible slope. And after 20, it's now just slope. And so everybody can use it. It's a lower slope than an accessible slope. So it's usable by everyone. Uh, but it doesn't require railings, it doesn't require landings, it doesn't require curbs, uh, it's just slope. So if in this situation, there's two parts to the question. One is we were trying to make it available to everybody, so it's universally designed. uh, And the other part is we don't want to spend money uh, on railings and curbs and things like that. So both of those things are important parts of it. So the correct answer here is going to be anything larger or equal to or larger than 20, Uh, Because that's uh, the accessible slope range is 1 to 12 to 1 to 20 and then after that is the Accessible without having all those rules and regulations So your answer is 20 or 20 plus
0: All right down to uh, down to six folks at this point
1: Way to go all right number seven in general a site design should try to balance uh, A, the ar- uh, arterial and local streets, B, cut and fill, C, PUD, D, the deciduous and the coniferous. Um, well, there's all kinds of things that we would be interested in with deciduous and coniferous, but it's not really about balancing. Uh, we may use deciduous trees that leaf during the summer, uh, but then they those leaves fall away in the winter. Uh, we may use that for shading devices for buildings uh, or outdoor areas. Uh, We may use them for aesthetic reasons or wind uh, in certain ways. Uh, Coniferous trees, which keep their leaves, uh, the needles generally, evergreens, uh, keep their their leaves uh, all year. Uh, That's not going to be something we would generally use for shading the shape of a coniferous trees, while not kind of always the case. I'm going to draw a little Christmas tree here. Um, uh, I don't get that big uh, canopy that I get with a deciduous tree that's going to give me a lot of shade Uh, with a uh, coniferous tree. I'm just going to get a a much smaller amount of shade uh, that's going to come from that. So they're just not very useful from a shading standpoint. Plus, uh, generally, when I'm thinking about it from a shading uh, standpoint, I want shade in the summer, but I don't want shade uh, in the winter. So the idea that the leaves of a deciduous tree drop, very useful. Uh, whereas coniferous is not so useful from that, of kind of giving me the benefit of the sunlight during the during the winter. So uh, deciduous and coniferous trees, is lots of interesting things to talk about, but it's not about balancing. It's That's just not uh, what you're doing there. You're getting the benefits out of it. You might want all deciduous trees. You might want all coniferous trees to block a lot of wind uh, all winter or something like that, but uh, that's just not how it's gonna work. PUD, uh, we just talked about the planned unit development. That's, uh, again, it's not about balancing anything, it's about making a proposal. So that's uh, not really our uh, potential answer. So uh, not C and not D. So then our question here is arterial and local streets and cut and fill. Uh, uh, arterial and local streets is actually kind of an interesting uh, set of uh, issues that relate to this. Um, but it's, again, not about balancing uh, You are uh engaging arterial streets in a particular way and you are engaging local streets in a particular way so for example if you were on a corner and there was an arterial street arterial meaning big street that's like the the, one of the main arteries of that local area uh so it's a big main street where the cars are going pretty fast you would probably not put a house uh driveway going out where you're going to back out into that arterial street uh you would probably Yes, I would do that onto the local street, but not onto the arterial street. So again, there are issues with arterial and local streets that I would want to think about and make sure I was using appropriately, uh, given the site and given the location, what I had access to, Uh, but it's not something that I can balance. So we're down to and left with cut and fill. So what the hell is cut and fill? Well, cut and fill is the idea that if I'm doing, if I'm being a smart designer, and I decide that we're gonna dig out, we're gonna excavate a bunch of the site in order to do a basement and to do some uh, bioswales and to move the water around in a particular way, I'm gonna dig a bunch of soil out. I can either take that soil and put it in a bunch of trucks and truck it somewhere at massive expense because soil is heavy and the trucks are expensive, Uh, or as a smart designer, I can say, well, wouldn't it be smart if I just if I dig out some over here maybe I make a mound over there and that's the idea of balancing cut and fill this is kind of like that idea about sunlight getting to every uh, unit um, this is one of those things it's not a rule it's not something that has to be this is something that is just about sort of good design being smart about your design activities uh, so this is a an unwritten rule that uh, the folks at NCARB and AIA and sort of every guidebook you'll ever see will say, it's just sort of a, a thing you should know that if you're doing site work, you would try to balance cut and fill so you don't have extra cost and also all the weird things that happen when you start taking soil that might be contaminated from one place or have certain kinds of invasive species, and then you're going to dump it somewhere else, and now those invasive species have, have moved on and, and spread even more. So there's there's actual reasons to do it, but it's mostly about just being kind of a good designer in the world.
0: All right. Uh, down to six. We also have multiple offers to send some WD-40 down to the rural studio. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes i, I uh, apologize uh, there are good. actual rural studio students doing <laughs> rural studio work in the room and they keep like those students are damn gonna do they keep walking in and out of the door and the door makes a lot of noise sorry about that it's, uh, it's That's all day good, day here. Uh, so so feel free to send them uh some uh, some <laughs> wd-40 i'm sure they could use it and it's tax-deductible. So That's it. right, it's
0: tax deductible, deductible. Uh, Okay, <laughs> number, eight.
1: Uh, <laughs> right. uh, number eight, the structural engineer suggests that uh, to make your uh, schematic design for the new Minneapolis Public Library economical, we will need to have a soil capacity of at least 3,000 PSF. The soils report uh, has the following information. It uh, talks about organic material at the first six inches, uh, silty sand until about 18 inches, Uh, sand a little bit after that, uh, and then sandy gravel, gravel and stone, and bedrock uh, down below 32 feet. Uh, And so we have a couple of different pieces of information in here, but what we're looking for is trying to figure out uh, what is the best depth to choose uh, for the bottom of the footing. So uh, where does the footing need to go in our excavation in order to be a viable and smart and logical uh, spot for this uh, set of information? Um, so this is a kind of an example where there, this would probably be more like uh, one of the case studies where there would be a soils report, there would be uh, some uh, zoning information, there would be some other stuff. It would be separated out pieces of information, and this would be one of many questions you might get. Uh, and you'd have to analyze that information and make sort of logical decisions. So we've kind of crammed it together into one question. Um, and this is a little bit of a trick. Uh, but the sort of situation here is we're looking for 3,000 PSF, so that's pounds per square foot. So if I have a load coming down through a column, through a bearing wall, uh, I can add up all of the dead load and the live load. We can figure out what that total load is coming down through my structure. And I need to have enough capacity in the soil to give back at least that amount of load. If I have more load than the soil capacity, then when I build that structure, it's going to just start slipping down in. It's gonna, you know, imagine you take a pencil and you push on it into the soil. uh, The the point of the pencil is gonna go right into the soil if I don't have enough capacity of the soil uh, to push back uh, given the load coming down. So I'm always trying to balance the amount of, uh, uh, like choose the right soil depth that I'm gonna get the right amount of uh, PSF, the right amount of pounds per square foot of ability to push back as my building load comes down and uh, presses downward. So they've asked for 3,000 PSF. That's actually a relatively low number for an institutional building. It would probably be higher, but I just chose that to make this question work a little bit better. Um, So we look on our soils report uh, and we find that our 3,000 PSF is right there. And we can do that in the sandy soil uh, anywhere uh, right in that range of one and a half feet to two and a half feet uh, below uh, below grade. So this uh, the, we are 30 inches uh, below grade in order to put our footing. But, and here's the tricky part, you also had to realize that this is Minneapolis. Uh, and Minneapolis is a very cold climate, and the PSF is not even the driving source of the issue. In this case, the issue is actually about frost depth. If I put the footing at uh, 30 inches or two feet below grade, uh, it's gonna get cold enough in Minneapolis that the ground will freeze down that depth and actually freeze underneath our footing and through frost heave will lift up because when uh, the moisture in the soil gets cold enough, it freezes, it expands just like it does in your refrigerator when you make uh, ice cubes. It'll expand and it will it's a very strong expansion and it'll literally lift the building up. Now, it'll only expand a tiny amount, uh, so it's not like it's gonna you know, throw it out of the soil or something like that, but it'll expand it a little bit and then in, when it unfreezes, it'll let it go back and then it'll expand it a little bit and then it'll let it go back. And the constant expansion uh, and, and contraction, expansion and contraction will eventually work the building right up and out of the soil. It might take years, um, but uh, that's the kind of problem you would have, which is why we have the idea of frost depth. A cold climate, I'm going to need to go deeper than uh, the 30 inches that the sand is going to give me, um, and I actually don't know for sure. I thought I knew, but then somebody questioned me, and I realized I wasn't 100% sure, um, but I believe Minneapolis is D, 48 inches uh, for frost depth. So when you look at the answers, the clue is there in that answer D, it actually says uh, the uh, 48 inches for frost depth and to sort of clue you into the idea that uh, there are other issues involved, not just the PSF. Uh, So would I go the 24 inches for the uh, 3000 PSF? That would get me enough PSF, that would get me enough structural capacity from the soil but it would be too high up, too close to the, to the grade, uh, and would likely freeze and cause problems. Uh, would 32 feet down to bedrock uh, uh, for the best capacity, that would be awesome, but it's gonna be much, much, much more expensive. Uh, I'd get 10,000 PSF, that's way more than I need. Uh, so that's certainly a reasonable answer, but it's not the logical answer uh, in this situation uh 36 inches for the well-drained sandy gravel uh sandy gravel being well drained might be useful but it's not the key running point uh, of what we're talking about here really in a cold climate that's going to be the deciding factor uh or if there's a basement or other things there are design reasons why we'd go down lower but uh the height of uh the the depth excuse me of the uh, footing is about the frost depth until i get into places where uh, frost depth is just not an issue Uh, say uh, alabama florida new orleans uh, arizona things like that uh, where it's just not likely to get that cold for that long it takes quite a while it's not just a one-time cold but it has to be cold for a while uh, for that to be meaningful Um, and that frost depth uh, uh, becomes uh, the driving force until you get to those parts of the country that the frost depth is maybe 12 inches or zero inches or something like that because it just doesn't get that cold at which point then just the capacity would be the driving force
0: So guys this one here um, uh, Presumably Mike would, would agree with this. There's gonna be one of those that yeah, they uh, so many of you have been asking um Uh, How would you know 48 inches is actually the right answer? And so, in this case, in the real exam, there probably would be some information about that. Um, And Mike, to your your question, Philip, presumably from Minneapolis, says that, yes, you're correct. It's cold as hell there and it's uh, 48 inches. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Yeah. So uh, Chicago gets to is typically 36 in certain Chicago areas. It's actually 42, um, uh, which is deep enough, Uh, (laughs) but it's always a little bit colder in Minneapolis. And so, yeah, they have a 48 inch. That's great. I'm glad you checked. Uh, I appreciate that. Uh, I thought it was right, but I wasn't 100 percent sure. Um, yeah, so like I said at the beginning of this question, this is likely a sort of condensed version of a uh, case study type question, um, which uh, would have more multiple pieces of information attached to it. All right, number nine. The site has a building height restriction by zoning code. The client wants to have a lot of storage and back of house uh, areas that could potentially be in basements. The client suggests that the program should be focused on a building that has many floors of basements in order to make a relatively large building without going above the height limit, without uh, dealing with the zoning code height limit. As a designer, what would be one of the first concerns you would want to research given that? Um, so you suddenly start thinking about, all right, we're gonna go onto the site. They're trying to keep the building's uh, overall height down. So they wanna push a bunch of the floors down into the ground. So maybe I have two floors of basements or three floors of basements. So I'm going down, you know, 16 feet, 20 feet, 25 feet, something like that, right? That's getting deep into the ground. Uh, One of the first things I would want to know is where is the water table? So the water table is going to be that uh, idea and it's sort of a kind of conceptual and real thing. Uh, when I have soil, uh, the soil is saturated at some point. So if I dig down and dig a hole, and this is all happened, everybody's done this, maybe at a beach or something, you dig a hole at the beach. Uh, and at a certain point, the water fills up a part of that hole and it fills up to a certain line. If you went a few feet away and you dig a, dug another hole, the water would fill up to that same line. Because that's the the local water table. It's the line below grade at which the water uh, is the the soil is saturated, and when given an opportunity, will become a puddle, become actual water. Uh, the reason this is important is if you start to imagine, I've got you know my site uh, here, and I'm putting this building on top of it, uh, but now I'm also putting floor after floor after floor down here Uh, but let's say my water table is there at uh let's say 15 feet below uh grade uh well that means i have to go way out of my way to make sure uh, that the relationships here are not going to start allowing the saturated soils from just seeping water into my basements. So I would get tons and tons of water continuously there unless I did a lot of very extensive efforts uh, to make sure that that wasn't the case. So uh, when you see a situation like this, uh, it's clearly sort of aiming you towards what's the problem with going deep into the soil and what are the potential problems? Well, it's expensive uh, to dig out the soils uh, it's uh, there's a lot of water the water table issues I would have to dewater the site while we're doing the building I'd have to use a more expensive like maybe a slurry wall or something like that a system for uh, Building which is going to be a more expensive system uh, It's gonna be harder to do the construction and I'm gonna have long-term seepage problems uh, over time because I'm gonna be uh, my the toes of my building are gonna be in the damp and so there's going to be wicking water all the time, trying to get through uh, those uh, those wall systems. Uh, so a situation like this, absolutely, going to be the water table. And that's uh, that's a sort of convoluted question, uh, but I was I was trying to get to that concept, and so hopefully that was not too uh, too crazy for people.
0: So I have three hanging in there, Mike.
1: Way to go, impressive, all right. Uh, all right, number 10, uh, prior to buying the land and starting the project, a potential client asks for your suggestions on where to start when considering whether the site is a good site for a specialty market uh, for organic food. Uh, what should your suggestions be? Choose three. So the possibilities we have here are market study, amenity study, catchment study, zoning review, easement review, occupancy permit. Um, so this is this happens all the time um, uh, where a project is starting off you're not even necessarily under contract with the the client yet Uh, it might be before that even kicks in but they're trying to decide like should I buy this piece of land does this make sense uh, to put this particular project in this location is this something uh, that makes sense in the long term you imagine you have a lot of uh, potential owners and clients uh, that have a lot of knowledge about certain things, but they don't necessarily have a lot of knowledge about zoning or about uh, you know how financing works or something like that. And so kind of understanding how their project kind of fits into that world uh, is a pretty helpful, useful thing for an architect to be able to give that kind of advice. And it might be a contracted thing that you would do separate from your normal B101 type contract, AIA B101 owner architect agreement, uh, it could be separate from that, or it could be as an additional service uh, to that, or it could be just that you're doing this because you're doing it for free and you're hoping that uh, when they actually get to the, to the real project, after they decide to buy the land, they'll come back to you and give you the project. So there's a bunch of different ways you might be involved in something like this. Some contracted, some not. Um, but it comes up a lot where in those moments, those clients say, look, I'm about to do this. I want to do this kind of new project, but I need some help understanding what to do what should we make happen first? So a couple of these we can get rid of pretty quickly. Uh, One of them is going to be occupancy permit. Uh, That's something that happens at the end of a project. That's where you go through the whole design, through the whole construction, and right at the very end, right before the very end, there's a moment where you walk through with the zoning officials, Uh, excuse me, code officials, building code officials, uh, and you walk through and they say, yes, this does meet all the fire safety, all the egress safety, all the uh, plumbing issues, all that stuff, so we, we grant you an occupancy permit. Not all buildings have to go through this. If you're doing smaller scale single-family houses, and a lot of places won't have to do something like that. But times where you have a lot of like you know office buildings, things like that, where there's a lot of people involved, they'll have to go through this just to make sure that uh, they're not st- they're not opening up the building before the stairs are finished or uh, creating a dangerous situation. So an occupancy permit's a real thing. It's just not something that's appropriate to this uh, particular question. Um, <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the easement review is something that would show up on the survey, which is something that would be talked about. Um, but it's not something that's going to be driving most of these kinds of projects. So it's not something that's going to be uh, the thing that's going to start or stop one of these uh, these uh, in this discussion with the owner. So I'm going to cross that one off. Uh, And so we have market study, amenity study, catchment study, and zoning review. Uh, Well, you absolutely would want to do a zoning review uh, because you need to figure out, like, they may not actually even know, like, it may not be an appropriate use for that zoning. Uh, And so they're about to buy this land or have just bought this land. You need to tell them right away if this doesn't make any sense. Uh, I've actually had a number of times where people come to me with projects. One time where they had bought the, the land to do a... Uh, daycare center, and uh, we walked in on the first the first meeting, and we walked in and said, "You can't put a daycare center here; it doesn't fit the zoning." And because we just looked it up on our phones while we were meeting with them, uh, and you know that imagine if we didn't have look up that thing in that meeting, we could have gone to fifteen meetings, we could have done hundreds of hours worth of work. They could have, uh, you know, bought all kinds of it. So they were able to back out of their contract in that situation uh, before the sale finally went through because it actually didn't fit uh, and they ended up buying another space and we did the daycare center for them. So zoning review, hugely important early on. Can you actually even do whatever this is? In this case, it's a specialty market. So retail uh, in this kind of uh, discussion. A catchment study. Catchment study is sort of a kind of it's an odd term it actually comes from water catchment uh so if you think of a catch basin something like that uh you might think about maybe there's a catch basin in a parking lot and all the parts of the parking lot when it rains that fill up with water that flow to that catch basin that's the catchment area and so it's a way of thinking about what area flows to that drainage system well the way that we use it here in term catchment here is saying that if we think of all the potential buyers who are gonna be potentially using this spot, um, who are gonna be going to this site, you can think of them as people who potentially would flow to this site. Uh, So if it's like a corner store in a city, it might be a catchment area of a couple of blocks. Like if you were 15 blocks away from a corner store, you're probably not gonna walk to it to go buy some you know, thing of milk or something. But if you're going to walk 15 blocks, you're probably going to drive to a real grocery store. You're going to lose the sense of that like intimate corner store quality. So its catchment would be smaller than that. If you're talking about a grocery store, you might have a catchment area of actually quite a large neighborhood area. But also, people might actually drive to it uh, from fairly far away. So you might have a catchment area, you know, maybe you've got some streets in uh, a street grid and there's your uh, grocery store location, but then there's a highway over here. Uh, and so your catchment area might be sort of associated with the neighborhood, but then kind of follow the highway as well. So it doesn't have to be a, like a circle or a square or something like that. It's where are the people coming from that would go and use this school or store or uh, you know whatever it happens, fitness center, uh, anything. And if you do a catchment study and you realize, you know, our entire catchment that's likely to be using this is uh, 45 people because it's just not a very dense area, well, then that's not a place that can support a store. That's just not gonna work. So it's a way of helping people understand the likely capacity of any one site. Uh, so this is something architects probably wouldn't do the catchment uh, study, although I've done them before. Um, but typically it would be done by somebody who specializes in that uh, and it's a kind of thing that you would be telling You'd be helping them to understand what sort of issues would be useful to know before they put all their money in uh, So catchment study absolutely now we have the between market study and amenity study And this is a little terminology thing um, and I have sort of put this in here in order to be able to have this uh, particular conversation a market study is what does the market want so it's related to a catchment. You would actually probably do a catchment study as part of the market study, but it's about asking people questions. What kinds of stores do you want? What kinds of, uh, you know, what do you need? What's missing from the neighborhood? What's what's the market that uh, is available? What's the niche that's available uh, that would be helpful to you? It's a way of asking people questions and doing research and looking at what's uh, what businesses have gone out of business and what businesses are staying in business and, and are healthy. Uh, and sort of understanding what the market is like. So a market study is the other one that we would suggest. Uh, It's a very uh, sort of straightforward kind of concept. It's part of sort of somewhere between uh, real estate and architecture. Uh, So the people who do market studies are usually sort of specialists in the real estate end of things, uh, but uh, often architects are involved in it to sort of help uh, make clear what the uh, process is. And then amenity study—that's a, a very particular kind of thing. It's similar to a market study, but what it's saying here is the idea that uh, the amenities. Uh, let's say we're doing um, a multifamily housing or say condo building. Uh, you know, right now there's a certain expectation for condos in uh, uh, downtown Denver. Uh, that would be, you'd have a certain kind of uh, appliances maybe, or a certain kind of uh, room layout, maybe it's an open plan, is sort of the current thinking of things. Uh, and it's the the amenities that are expected in that situation. You could have an amenity uh, for offices, you could have amenities for stores and things, but generally when you say amenity study, you're talking about uh, for housing, uh, uh, condominiums, housing, uh, m- uh, rental housing, all those kinds of things and it will be different everywhere. It'll be different in different neighborhoods of the same city, uh, because there'll be different expectations of what uh, people would expect to have in that place. Uh, So uh, an amenity study is very similar, but doesn't actually quite fit to this particular
0: question. So,
1: how are we doing there, Mark?
0: We're doing good. We actually have one winner, Uh, (laughs) one person left. who has a? Uh, wow. Got them all right. Impressive. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Mike did. Even with all the the poorly worded and trick questions. Well, yeah, we we got a winner. So um, we'll get to that in one sec. Was there anything that you have wanted to sketch on the screen? We're a little bit over, so maybe we should just go to the last slide here. Yeah, I think we'll just keep moving. All right. Cool. So um, here's what I'll do. Uh, so first. Uh, um i think we've answered most of the questions as we've gone along here um we'll try to address some of them as we as we uh, you know offline um so i just want to thank you mike uh and thanks um you know to everyone at the rural studio who helped to make this happen today um thanks to everyone who tuned in and submitted their questions um if you'd like to attend our next are live broadcast um where we'll uh have a discussion with a recently licensed architects to learn how they passed um, for those of you who are on the live webinar, I actually posted a link directly in the little webinar control panel. So if you go on the right side there and scroll down to where it says chat, there's a little link in there. It doesn't pop up, it just kind of quietly sits there. You can click that and register for the next one. Um, if you're not uh, on the live broadcast right now, you can just simply go to blackspectacles.com slash podcast or register to attend. And again, just like today's episode, you have a chance to ask questions uh, during the session. Um, to learn more about our ARE exam prep curriculum. Hey, Mark. Go to Black- um, yeah. Mike? Sorry, can I just interrupt
1: for a quick second? I just wanted to give the Rural Studio students a chance to say, hello, goodbye, right? Hello,
0: goodbye. Goodbye. (laughs) So they're saying goodbye. All right. (laughs) That's awesome. Little do they know there's thousands of people from all over the country listening to them say that. (laughs) Um... Uh, we were just talking a little bit about the exam prep curriculum. You can go to Black Spectacles where you can try any of the free course videos. And I often like to say, and if you'd like for your boss to pay for your membership, be sure to visit blackspectacles.com slash firms to learn more about our firm memberships for firms really of any size. Um, we talked earlier about our ARE5 practice exams as well as our group coaching. Those are two new things to check out. And then for those of you who are ready to start preparing uh, for the ARE right now, and if you're already an AI member, you can use coupon code SPD101017PC to get a 15% discount for the entire duration of your ARE exam prep membership. Um, so let's see here. Um, So the winner of our uh, free t-shirt today is Jared B. from Brunton Architects and Engineers. So Jared, way to go. And Brunton Architects and Engineers, way to uh, help uh, Jared get so sneaking smart so fast. Um, That's awesome. Um, And then let's see, our winner from our whole pool of answers, let's see if Siri will serve me well here. Siri, give me a random number between one and 75. I don't think she's listening to me right now. Let's try her again. Hey Siri, there she is. I need a random number between one and 75.
1: Random number between one and 75
0: is 18. 18, Clay, can you tell me um, who is number 18 on our list of everyone who submitted their answers? Tina B, do we know what firm she's from? Moody Nolan. All right, Tina, congratulations. Um, You're gonna win uh, a free one-month membership for Black Spectacles, ARE prep, and our software tutorials. Uh, So congratulations to you. Um, And for everyone else, make sure you submit your answers for our next mock exam so you can be entered into our monthly drawing. And then finally, tomorrow we'll send you an email follow-up about today's live broadcast. So please let us know what you think, share any suggestions you may have. Uh, I promise we'll read every word that you write and use them to tune our next episodes. So thanks for tuning in.